Take out your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. And when you find it, please find the 12th chapter. The 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. This morning we're going to be concluding the series that we began a number of months ago entitled Rhythms of Grace. And I had planned to preach this message three Sundays ago, but I woke up and I found myself in the hospital rather than in the pulpit that Sunday. And so in the providence of God, we're going to consider where we would have been three weeks ago, and I trust that the Lord is still stoking this in my heart. I pray that it is um, something that is fresh for you as well. But we've been talking about rhythms of grace. We've been in a series for a couple months talking about spiritual practices for a healthy soul. And, you know, as we've been considering these practices, you know what I've come to understand is that in every one of these practices we've looked at, they are all countercultural. They are all countercultural in, term, in, in, in terms of how we might live our lives, in terms of uh, just the flow of life and the pressures of life and the stream of life. How many of you ever have tried to paddle a kayak or a canoe upstream? How many of you have done that? Can I see? How many of you know just how incredibly challenging that is, right? And, and in a lot of ways, I feel that in what we've considered these last number of weeks. That these practices are things that are so countercultural. Things like prayer and meditation, things like silence and solitude, those all brush up against the flow of life as we are aware of it. And as we think about how God wants us to live, we, we consider that there are practices, there are rhythms that God would have for you and I as his children. There is this consistent movement that God wants us to live our lives to, a rhythm for our life, because God desires that we have a healthy soul. God desires that your soul is spiritually thriving. And with that in mind, I want us to consider our theme verse. This is where we've been the last number of weeks. We've been considering 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. And we've considered what does it mean to train ourselves for godliness. Do we have that, guys? 1 Timothy 4, do we have that? Can we read it together? Rather, train yourself for godliness, verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So it is from this verse that we've been looking into a lens in Scripture, asking the question, what does it mean to train ourselves for godliness? What does it mean that we engage in these spiritual practices, in these spiritual activities and disciplines in the Christian life? And if you've been with us a number of weeks, I'm sure by now uh, you could define what a spiritual discipline is. But for those who are new this morning, let me show you. Here is how we've been defining it. Spiritual disciplines are Holy Spirit-empowered activities and habits that by design God uses to grow His people in grace, to draw them closer to His Son, and to produce in them a life of spiritual transformation. Uh, Donald Whitney says it this way, spiritual disciplines are the God-given means of experiencing God. I just so love that. He, he's talking about these practices are things that we do, that as we do them, we are putting ourselves on this path to really experiencing Jesus better. And as we engage in these practices, um, the Spirit of God grows us. It is through these things that the Spirit of God uses these things, prayer and Bible study and 
gratitude and worship and, and all of these practices, and really we're just kind of scratching the surface at these spiritual practices. Now, here's the thing. Spiritual practices are not whatever you want them to be. I, I think we're living in a day where some people are like, drinking coffee for me is a spiritual practice, all right? That may be beneficial, that may be helpful, but that is not a biblical practice, all right? So in order to find the spiritual practices in the Word that, 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 that are there, we need to go to the Bible and let the Bible inform our understanding on these practices. But there are many more that we could have considered in our series, and we've just really scratched the surface on six. We talked about the meditation of Scripture. We talked about prayer. We talked about worship. We talked about silence and solitude. We talked about gratitude. And this morning, the one that might strike you as different, and although I would say it's probably the most challenging one, specifically for us who are living in the Western world today, and that is the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Simplicity. I love how one person describes simplicity. They said, the discipline of simplicity is an inward reality resulting in an outward lifestyle. It's an inward reality resulting in an outward lifestyle. And in order to talk about simplicity this morning, we're going to go to the Gospels and we're going to consider a story given from the life of Jesus here in Luke chapter 12. And then at the very end, we're going to kind of bring the story full circle and we're going to apply it talking about simplicity in the Christian life. You've opened your Bible to Luke chapter 12. Now here in Luke chapter 12, from beginning in chapter 11 through chapter 12, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He had gathered around his 12 disciples and he had begun to teach them. In fact, Jesus was praying and his disciples had seen Jesus pray, and they asked him the question, Lord, teach us to pray. There was something about the life of Christ. There was something about the way that Jesus modeled in his prayer life, something that they wanted to learn. And so they asked him to teach them, and Jesus is teaching his disciples. And as he begins to teach his disciples, this larger crowd begins to gather around him. Luke tells us that there were many thousands of people who had gathered. And so now at this point, Jesus begins to speak to them. He is speaking to the multitudes, and he is talking to the multitudes about a healthy soul. If you look down in your Bible at, verse, at chapter 11, if you go back one chapter and find verse 34, notice how Jesus describes it. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, Jesus says, lest the light in you be darkness. Do you see what Jesus is talking about? He's talking about a healthy soul. He says that your body, that when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But Jesus says if your eye is bad, then your whole body is full of darkness. You see, in this, Jesus is pronouncing a woe to the Pharisees. In this crowd of people, there are not only his disciples, there is the multitude, but there's some others there. There are scribes, there are Pharisees, there are teachers of the law. And in all of these, in fact, if you were to read chapter 11, in a number of instances, Jesus is fielding questions from religious leaders who are trying to trap him in what he is saying. They're trying to condemn him. And Jesus says, woe to the scribes. Woe to the Pharisees. Now, let me tell you, anytime that Jesus says woe about anybody, that's bad news. That's bad news. 
Because here's the problem with these individuals. They were guilty of misplaced priorities. I wonder, are you? Are you? They had majored on the minors. They had, Jesus said, they had neglected justice. They had neglected the love of God. And in turn, what were they valuing? They were valuing the praise of men. They were valuing the prestigious places in the synagogue. And Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy. Look right up here this morning. Pharisees aren't only found in the first century. Some of us who are here this morning may find ourselves guilty of the exact same thing. You say, what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is a pretense that your character is virtuous when it's not. It's this pretense that you have this genuine faith that you possess when you don't. Hypocrisy is a facade. It's an external outward appearance that just is kind of like the scaffolding or a structure, but it lacks reality. Someone put it this way, your reputation is what people think you are, character is what God knows you are. So I want to ask you this morning, are there any hypocrites here today? You see, here's the reality, Pharisees are not only found in the first century. In fact, as if, we, if we were to examine our own life and to ask ourselves some hard questions, is the inward of reality of my life, is my character, my virtue, is my um, faith real? Or is it just seen real? Is it just perceived real by people when I gather in places like today? You see, Jesus said in verse 2 of chapter 12, look down at your Bible. Look down at chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to what Jesus said. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is saying, everything is revealed. Oh, not to others whom we can fool, but to an omniscient, almighty God. He knows every facet about every one of our lives. Jesus said in this passage that God knows that the number of hairs that you have on your head, and he has them numbered. So look right up here. If God knows your life to that deep a dimension, and God this morning, if I were to ask the Lord, God, how many hairs does Justin have on his head? Wouldn't even blink. I mean, God would have the answer just like that. If God knows that level of detail about our head and our hairs, then does he certainly not know the things we've said or spoken or done in private? Does he not know the inward parts of the heart? Certainly he does. And so if God knows the number of hairs on our head, then certainly he knows everything else. He's acquainted, the Bible said, in all our ways. If he knows that level of detail, then there is nothing that he is not fully aware of of you and I. How humbling is that? I mean, how incredibly humbling is that? Every one of us have skeletons in the closet. All of us have done things or gone through things or said things that we wish we could take back. All of us have been involved in things or said things or done things that we wish we had not. But God knows who we really are. And so in light of all of that, Jesus says in verse 5 of chapter 12, so fear him. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Jesus said, hey, don't get so hung up about what other people think of you because at the end of the day, they're not judge and jury of your life. 
But my goodness, you better get concerned over the one who, after you are dead, has the ability to cast you into hell or not. So fear him. He's fully acquainted in all of our ways. And here's the point in in, in Gospel of Luke chapter 12 that Jesus, in speaking these woes to these religious leaders, what ought to have humbled them at Jesus' word. Do you know what they ended up doing? They tried to defend themselves. God help us. I mean, God help us. If God exposes sin in our life and we start trying to defend it, if we start trying to cover it, if we try to not be honest about our sin and broken in our response, may we be like the tax collector. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How many of you are here in church this morning and you you want to resonate with that? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because these Pharisees, in all their religiosity, were not beyond the reach of grace. They weren't. God's grace was enough for them. Jesus had come to save them. Jerry Bridges says, our worst days are never so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace. And our best days are never so good that we're beyond the need of God's grace. So what does that mean for you and I today? To cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, to mourn and weep, to let our laughter be turned into mourning and our joy to gloom, humble ourselves before the Lord. Would you do that this morning? Would you humble yourself today before an omniscient, all-knowing God? In just a while, we're going to gather around the table, and this table right here is a supper for sinners who have come to understand the depth of God's mercy and grace. So this morning, we come to the story that Jesus is teaching. And in fact, we're not even there yet. (laughs) But Jesus is teaching the multitudes. And all the while, while Jesus is teaching, right in the middle of it, Jesus is interrupted. He's interrupted by some guy in the crowd who shouts out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I want you to think about some things about this guy for a second. First one, this guy was indifferent to what Jesus was actually teaching. Had he been concerned about what Jesus was speaking of here, he would have been all ears. But rather, he was preoccupied with something else. He's not only indifferent, he's impatient. He's only focused on his problem, on his own desire. And his request, although inappropriate under these circumstances, was not unusual. Because rabbis in first century had routinely arbitrated civil and family disputes among family members. So like it wasn't that he was asking Jesus something out of the realm of what Jesus could do as rabbi. For one, why in the world would you, I mean, in the milt, I mean, I mean, I don't understand this guy, really. I mean, thousands of people are there listening to Jesus. And this guy has the audacity on a pause moment for Jesus to yell out his question. Now, no doubt, certainly many Bible scholars believe that when Jesus answers him and when he says to him, 
Go to the next slide, please, verse 14. Man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? The you there is not singular, it's plural in Greek. I think what, this guy may have been there with his brother. I mean, this guy may be trying to point point this guy out in front of all this crowd and say, hey, Jesus, do something about this guy, right? You see his his motive? He's impatient, he's um, indifferent. And Jesus gives them a really rather unsympathetic response. Do you see it there in verse 14? Man, who made me judge an arbitrator over you? Look, that word man is like mister, you know? It is like Jesus here is a little perturbed that some guy is interrupting his teaching, right? And he says, man, who made me judge an arbitrator over you? You see, Jesus, though, here is not being dismissive of this man's problem. Rather, this is Jesus, God the Son. And Jesus, God the Son, knows that no matter what answer he might give this man, it will not address the covetousness in the heart of these two brothers. Because when Jesus speaks, he speaks plural. He's talking about both of them. And I want you to think about that this morning because here's the reality. Covetousness is this insatiable quest, unquenchable thirst for more. And and, and Jesus knows that that he's not going to get into this dispute among a family because the real issue is not how things are being divided in the estate. The real issue is this man's heart. Jesus knows that the problem of the heart is that, that there's this real issue in this man's heart and the problem is covetousness. In fact, the problem in both of these brothers' heart is covetousness. What is covetousness? It's this unquenchable thirst for more, for more money, for more stuff, for more power, for more prestige, for more position. It's this craving, this desire for something more. It could be for someone, it could be for something. And in fact, many times covetousness is the root of many of our sins. And so when we think about sins being the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life, in fact, what you can discover is that for any one of us, any three of those motivations to sin can have underneath them this desire, this unquenchable thirst for more. And so Jesus takes this man's interruption and he turns it into an object lesson for the whole crowd on this issue of covetousness. He says in verse 15, look down at your Bible in verse 15, notice how Jesus answers him. And he said to the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I want you to think about this because this is very different from where you and I are today. Jesus is speaking in an agrarian culture with people that by and large didn't have a lot of stuff. I mean, he was speaking to people who were wondering where their next meal was coming from or what were they going to wear or what were their clothes be. I wonder, what would Jesus say to you and I in the church in the 21st century? That our life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus says, hey, watch out. Watch out in your life, lest you think that somehow the sum total of everything in your life is about your stuff. And he gives the story. He teaches a parable to explain his point. Let's read it together. It's found in verse 16. 
And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. All right, so there's this rich guy. He has property. We'd probably call him a farmer, all right? He's a rich farmer. Verse 17. And he thought to himself, what must I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I love it in verse 19. Look what he says. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him in verse 20, what? Say it louder. What did God call him? Fool. Say it even louder. What did God call him? Fool. A fool. For this night... Your soul is required of thee, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You know, we learn so much about this man, this rich farmer in the story, but he's called a fool by God. Why is he a fool? Why is he a fool? If we're not careful, we'll, 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 miss, over, we'll, we'll miss the point of why God called him a fool. So some of us will just latch on to something that Jesus said in the story and we'll think that because of that is the real reason why he's foolish when it really isn't. Here's a couple things, two things. He is not a fool because he's saved for the future. He's not a fool because he has barns and wants to build bigger barns. The Proverbs are full of people saving for the future. The Bible has a lot to say about leaving an inheritance not to your children, but to your children's children. The Bible says, go to the ant, thou slugger, and consider her ways and be wise. Why? Because she's storing up food for the winter. So here's the reality. It's the, the, he's not a fool because he's saved, but secondly, he's not a fool because he's rich. Don't misinterpret the parable and say that he's a fool because of the abundance of his wealth. That's not what God says. In fact, God's the one who gave this guy a bumper crop. God's the one who blessed him with that stuff. So there's nothing wrong with this farmer wanting to build bigger barns and to store his food. Money's not the problem. The Bible, though, clearly says that the love of money is the root of all what? Evil. Evil. So it's not money, it's the love of money. So he's not a fool because he's saving and preparing for the future. He's not a fool because he's rich and wealthy. You look in the Bible, some of the most notable Bible characters were wealthy individuals. Look at people like Abraham. Look at people like um, Job. So there are many instances in Scripture where we see wealth is not the problem. Why is he a fool? Why? Someone tell me. Why is he a fool? Why is he a fool? Look down in your Bible at the story and tell me how many eyes and how many mys do you see? Eyes and mys. The whole story is, is filled with it. And I will say to my soul, soul, <laughs> right? The, the, the whole thing in this whole account is the reason this guy is a fool is because he appears to only be living for himself. Look down at verse 16. He thinks to himself, the Bible says. Verse 18, he speaks to himself. Verse 19, he's having this conversation with himself and he goes so far to commend himself. <laughs> Do you see that in verse 19? Do you see it? Look down in your Bible. Look at what he says. And I will say to my soul, soul, 
You have ample goods laid up for many years. It's like, hey, you're saving for the future. You've been blessed in all these ways, but good job. Well done. And he's not pointing to anyone else. He's not thanking God. The whole focus in this whole story is on who? It's on himself. It's on himself. And God calls him a fool. He expresses no gratitude to God. I mean, not not an ounce of gratitude at all. The God who created the ground, the God who entrusted to him the land, the God who brought the rain and who sustains the sun, the God who gave this man the ability to work, the God who gave him the means to hire workers who can go out and help him plant and tend and harvest. The scripture says in the New Testament, what have you been given that you did not receive? What's the point? Everything in my life has come from and through the sovereign hands of God. None of us here today have anything in our life that was not given to us. God is the giver of everything. And so today, you can look at your life and you consider your bank account, you consider your family, you consider your possessions, and what we have to understand is that nothing in our life or our ability in our stewardship has come to us unless it comes to us through this gracious giver. And so notice, this man has zero ounce of gratitude for God at all. I wonder about you. Do you thank God for what he gives you? How often do you do it? How frequently do you find yourself expressing gratitude for God? Because here's the thing, that car that's sitting out in the church parking lot this morning is not your car. That place that you're paying mortgage and rent on is not your home. And those children that are sitting here in the sanctuary this morning with you are not your kids. All of it has been given to you on loan for a period of time. The Bible says you and I are stewards. We're in trust managers. We don't own it. We're a steward. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you're a steward. Here's the thing. This man in the story was a steward over all that God gave him. And he expressed zero gratitude. He expressed zero thanksgiving. Here's the thing. Anytime covetousness finds a foothold in our life and anytime covetousness creates those wars and fightings within us, it's always from that. It's, it's always from this lack of gratitude. The Bible says in Romans 1 that, 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 that mankind was neither thankful and they did not worship God as creator. They, they exchanged this truth of God for a lie. And here's the reality, my friend. All the talent and treasure and time that you have today has been given to you by a gracious God. This man in the story, this farmer, everything that he had was from the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it was from the Lord. Hey, who gave him the bumper crop? Who, who gave it to him? Someone tell me. The Lord, the Lord did. But he thinks he did. Do you see it? What's the issue in the story? What's the issue in the parable? Here it is. He forgot God. Man, how easy is that to do in our life today? How easy is it for us to go through a season of days and weeks reaping the blessings of God, experiencing the gifts of God, 
And soon after a period of time, we somehow begin to think, well, I worked for that. I, I deserve that. I've worked for that. I, 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 I can have it. And what happens is this covetousness in our heart, it begins to just do this all-out consuming thing in every bit of our life to where we're not just coveting what other people have. We cover it to the level that we desire it, right? Like, 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 so we take it and we steal it or we commit adultery with some other's wife who's not our own. How does that happen? Covetousness, this inward desire for more, this, this, this inquatable thirst for more. And notice here it is in verse 19. Notice what he said. I have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, what's the next word? What did God tell him? What did God call him? He called him a what? Fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, then whose will they be? Do you see that there? This rich farmer thought that his possessions would provide for him security. He thinks that he has success. He thinks that he has ample stuff. And because of that, he's given himself his own commentary. Oh, relax, eat and drink and be merry for many years. Really, what else could he want? He seemed to have everything that he wanted. He has a farm that he's having a problem of all this stuff. I mean, he's, he's living a life and he's been given such abundance. He's like, I don't even have room to put it. So I'm going to have to tear down barns and build bigger barns. I mean, he's been given a tremendous amount of stuff. He's successful. He thinks he has security for years. Really, what more could he possibly want? But here's the thing. God doesn't see things the way the farmer sees them. God didn't see this farmer enjoying life. God saw this farmer facing death. God said, Tonight, tonight, your soul is required of you. And these things that you've prepared, whose will they be? Guys tell you, you can't take your possessions with you into death. You can't take your possessions with you into death. But man, how in the world do we come to think that somehow we will? Many of us live that way. Many of us live like somehow all this stuff's coming with us. I've heard preachers say it often again and again. I've never seen a hearse being followed up by a, by a, a U-Haul. Never seen it. Never seen it. This guy's life, this guy thought he had all the time in the world and he didn't realize that he was about to step off into eternity. Yesterday, Jessica and I did something that Occasionally we like to do, and that is yard sailing. Any of you like going yard sailing? It's like one man's trash and another man's treasure, you know? And so we went out, and we were hitting all this stuff, and then we hit an estate sale. We were at an estate sale, and so I go down, and, and every time I'm at one of these places, I, I went down in the basement, and there they had a whole bunch of tools. And any of you ever been a given something or a toolbox from somebody who had passed away? Any of you ever done that? Guys in here? Ever received your dad's or grandfather's toolbox and... You're sitting there going through this stuff and then you're like, I don't know why I throw that away, right? 
And I started thinking yesterday as I was at this estate sale, all this stuff. But then the question in my mind was, well, where are they at in eternity? Did they know the Lord? Because all this stuff's just stuff. Simplicity. Simplicity. You can have wealth and live in simplicity. You can save and live in simplicity. Some of us today, you know what we need to do? We have some homework to do. Jesus ends the parable this way, verse 21. He says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And here's the whole key that unlocks the parable. And is not rich toward God. The stuff's not the issue. It's the covetous heart. It's the insatiable desire for more and somehow thinking that life is about you and his life is not rich toward God. You know what Jesus is saying to you and I today? He's saying, hey, get right with God and start getting rich toward God. Get right with God and get rich toward God. Now, here's the thing. There are so many applications to this story. In fact, we could be here all afternoon talking about different applications from this story. But one in particular, I think, is the issue of simplicity. So here's your homework. Y'all ready for homework today? Y'all ready for homework? So you're going to go home today. You're going to go have lunch. And then you're going to walk around your house. And you're going to go in the basement that you never want to go into. And you're going to go into the attic that you never venture in. And you're going to look around and you're going to say, when I die, will my children want this? What if this is valuable? What if this could do something for right now? You know, we walk into our house every day and what we do is we go in from the car loaded arms full, full of stuff. Any of you do this? Some of you carry like multiple bags full of stuff. How many times do we go out of our house carrying that same amount of stuff? Not often. Not routinely. So there's your homework. Simplicity. I wonder, how much more time could you have for God if that wasn't all taking up all your mental space, right? How, how much focus and devotion for the Lord could you have if you weren't so concerned with the things of the world? You know, many Christians are infected with covetousness and they don't even realize it. Because the reality is, is no matter how much they've been given, some of us always think that we don't have what we think we should have. Here's a few verses. Don't walk out of here and say that was the preacher's word. Let's take God's word for it. Amen. Matthew six nineteen, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen to these two verses from Eugene Peterson's, uh, Peterson's paraphrase. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. A devout life does not a devout life does bring wealth, but it's rich simplicity of being yourself before God. Since we entered into the world penniless, we will leave it penniless. If we have bread on the table and shoes on our feet, that's enough. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Do not love the world's ways. Do not love the world's goods. The love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Here's the question. Here's the question. Here's the question you have to answer. How would you respond to the farmer's dilemma? What was the farmer's dilemma? He had this bumper crop. God had blessed him in an incredible way. How would you answer it? In fact, we all have to answer it. That guy had to answer it that evening as he stood before the Lord and he gave an account of his life. And Jesus said, hey, when you're dead and gone, whose will all these things be? So simplicity. Hey, look, we live in America. I get it. (laughs) I get it. This is like foreign to America because America is all about abundance. America is all about stuff. And, And what you're hearing this morning in the message is less stuff. But Jesus said, for where your stuff is, where your treasure is, there will be your heart. So God, help us this morning to rid our life of so many things that crowd out the space for what you should have in our life. And when we find ourselves cherishing things that are physical far more than we cherish you and and, and appreciate you and bless you and respond in gratefulness to you, then Lord, help us throw it in the trash can. Paul says, I'm going to count it as dung so that I can win Christ. This is hard work, amen? This is hard. But by God's grace, he'll help you do it. And as you give and be a blessing, the Lord's just going to use that in unspeakable ways for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of it. Help us all as we consider and examine our life to think about Lord, how sometimes our life are just, our, our lives are just so crowded with so many things. And God, things aren't the problem, but Lord, if our affection is on the things, if, if the things are crowding out our affection for you, then Lord, it's a big issue. And so I pray you'd help every one of us to Lord, not think about this message in terms of the person sitting down the row from us or four rows back from us, but Lord, we would think about this message for us. And we would think about this farmer that didn't think about eternity. He didn't think about the brevity of life. He didn't think about when he died, who was going to have to inherit all of that stuff and how was that going to be distributed. Lord, help us to be so grateful to you and your blessings that, Lord, we wouldn't have any anxiousness. We, we would... We would uh, Lord, the next passage just goes on about that, that if you would take care of the clothing of beautiful flowers and if you would, God, take care of covering us with clothing, then Lord, how much more? God, how much more will you take care of your children? And so, Lord, we, we, we need to just refocus today. Lord, may we not be like the Pharisees who, Lord, were not humble. May we not be like them who had misplaced priorities. But God, help us to heed your word. Help us to apply it in our heart. 
and we're going to thank you for how you work in Jesus' name. Continue bowing your head before the Lord. Jessica's going to play. We're not going to come forward for an invitation this morning, although if you want to come forward for me to pray with you, I'd be glad to pray with you. But I invite you right now just to pray in your seat. Respond in how God is speaking to you today. I don't know how the Spirit of God spoke to you through the Word this morning, but I trust He did. And anytime God speaks, there's a response required of us. Fathers, we're going to gather around the table here in a few minutes. As sinners who have been saved by grace, we pray that, Lord, every stain, sin, Lord, would be cleansed. I pray you would help us individually, God, to purify our hearts, to cleanse our hands, and to receive just mercy and grace. You pray with the Lord, and I'll give you some moments of silence with God. invite our men to come forward and we're going to receive communion here in just a moment. You continue to pray as they come. into your presence, thankful for Jesus. Thank you that, Lord, we are welcomed at a time like this where, God, the eating of a fruit brought a curse for many. You offer yourself to us to take and eat and to find life abundant. And, Lord, this is a time of just remembering your death, your sacrifice, your burial, your ascension, your resurrection. Lord, as we think about all of the facets of what you've done for us, it is through your death and resurrection that, Lord, we are offered this opportunity to gather around your table. And so we just thank you and praise you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, you are still doing a work in our lives today for Jesus' sake. We ask it in your name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen.